Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's 1 p.m. on the West Coast on December the 30th, 2021. For some of you in Asia, it's already New Year's Eve. We're crawling to the new year. And of course, in 2022, there's only really been one story. The story has been Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And one of the men who I think, or one of the people who is most coherent and interesting on Ukraine is Peter Pomerantsev. He was on the show in March of this year, explaining why the Ukraine, and I'm not sure whether you're supposed to call it the Ukraine or just Ukraine, isn't really about Ukraine. He's kind of predicted it over the years in his previous two books, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Adventures in Modern Russia, which came out in 2017, and then um, his newest book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. But uh, he kind of predicted at least the outlines of the book and uh, and of history, and he's back with us. Peter, um, it's been quite a year. I remember when we talked in March... You seemed enormously depressed and dark about what was happening. I assume over the last nine months, you've cheered up a little bit. Is that fair? Um, golly, I, I mean, it's been such a year that I can't quite remember our feelings in March, but our feelings in March, that was right in the middle of the, of, of the attack on Kiev. Um, so, um, I mean, I went... I can't, had I already been to Ukraine when I when I'd spoken to you? I think my first trip there was in March, sort of week three. I went I went to Kiev. Yeah, um, so I think it was just either just before or just after. But you seemed, I mean, you've got friends and family there, so you seem particularly upset, yeah. traumatized with what was happening. Um, well, I mean, it, it, understandably, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, no, that goes on every day. Every day there are friends on the. Front. I mean, actually, then I didn't have friends on the front line that much. Now I have many friends on the front line, um, many colleagues. Um, so every day you're checking your Facebook and you, there's a new death of uh, somebody every day. It's a bit like World War One, where, where you know, the best and the brightest are, are serving. Um, so friends who are people just like me, not I'm the best and the brightest, but writers, pe people who aren't military, but writers and actors and film directors and journalists are all serving um, because they felt it was their patriotic thing to do. So you're not just worried about professional soldiers. You're worried about people who, who you knew from very other walks of life. So it's in a way there's there's more of that now because then I guess there was more fear for the country, but now it's a very, almost a very personal fear that, that your friends are dead. And, um, um, and and so so I, I don't know if that, if that bit of the trauma has gone at all. Um, I mean, it's clear now that that you know Putin's original plan was spoiled, but it's still unclear when the political calculation changes in Russia. Your your work has been on propaganda, particularly on the internet. Uh, your your book, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, Adventures in Modern Russia, is, a, is an excellent book. And then the most recent book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, as I said, sort of predict what's happened. To what extent is this in 2022? Has it been a propaganda war? I mean, obviously, it's a war on the ground, too. 
So it's a funny old war. I mean, in the sense that on the ground, it's a 19th century war. It's not even a 20th century war. It's like, it really feels like well, maybe first World War I is, is maybe the, the best example. There are people digging trenches and fighting for territory. So in that sense, it's a very much a, a war for, in the physical world with, you know, there's propaganda attached to that, sort of demoralizing the other side's troops, and that sort of stuff that is as old as, as the Trojan War. But at the same time, it's a war that's happening very much in the kind of, the postmodern world of, of contemporary global media, where Russia is trying to redefine the norms of the 21st century. And it's very unclear whether they're going to you know, get away with it, really acting as a sort of um, icebreaker um, where China and Iran and others will follow the sort of loose network of authoritarian regimes that want to define the 21st century. And in that sense, for that war, it doesn't actually necessarily matter what happens over every kilometer of ground. Um, it really matters how people see this war. Has Putin gotten away with it? Is he able to reshape reality? Maybe not the way he wants, but still able to reshape reality. Is, you know, words like truth and justice and accountability, are they basically dead forever? Um, so that, that war is only just starting to be fought. And that's a war very much in the kind of, you know, this fashionable term, uh, flo the floating signifiers of contemporary media, we, we, we still don't know how that will be defined. And um, so in that sense, so, so it's a war happening in two places, very much in the 19th century or the early 20th century, and very much in the 21st century, where, where everything is perception. Um, and I suppose it, th th that makes it very interesting um, from the sort of thing as I, I, I look at and looking at the relationship between the two. Obviously, a total Putin defeat would mean a lot in the war of perception. But as long as it's sort of still sort of grounding out where, yes, Putin has clearly failed in his aims, in his initial aims, but he's still bombing the Ukrainians with impunity. He's still mass murdering with impunity. As we speak, bulldozers are cleaning up the, um, the ruins of Mariupol, which Putin bombed like he did Aleppo, with corpses inside the ruins. They don't even bother taking out the corpses and giving them a burial. Whole lives are being washed away and Russia is importing whole new populations to remake them and, and saying, look, we have the right to recreate reality. You can get away with this in the 21st century. And the 21st century belongs to us, China, Iran, and your democratic world is, you know, it's going away with some difficulty, but it's over. Your friend Anne Applebaum wrote a piece in March explaining why Putin would risk war. This was, I think, before the invasion. Um, she argues that he wanted democracy to fail. Is this a war, a global war about democracy, about its viability fought between Russia and Ukraine? I mean, it's, it's also a colonial war, um, which in many ways does become a war about democracy, about self, uh, you know, about sovereignty um, and the right to, to self-definition. So uh, in that sense, yes, but, but, but I think... Um, I mean, even more than that, I mean, Putin talks about this very, very um, openly. You know, he wants to remake the world order. He thinks that um, the sort of the sort of the rules that, that have been set are, are not ones that Russia should obey, that they're hypocritical and that he wants to tear them apart um, and that the world should belong to to, you know, whoever is strongest and whoever can impose their will. So, so he's very open about this. I mean, so, so not just about Ukraine. Definitely he wants democracy in Ukraine to fail. 
that's obvious. But but also, you know, he wants the, I don't know, the rules-based international order, which is such a ridiculous phrase that, that it's hard to say without a smirk. Um, he wants he wants that to collapse. You've written extensively on what Putin wants. It's a great question, complicated question. Um, you say, or you wrote in September in The Guardian, that Putin is still shaping our perception, so we need to fight him at his own game. What does that mean, fighting Putin at his own game? And how do we do that? Um, I expect that was the headline, um, but but which, which the journalist never writes. Um, but... Look, we know how the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and ISIS and the far right, we know how much they invest in shaping perception. And we know the technologies and the toolkit they use. I mean, if you've ever been to Beijing, you'd have seen this huge, actually rather amazing uh, building dominating the skyline. That's the CGTN building, the building of the Chinese international media, which is a, openly a propaganda arm. They invest billions. They think it's very important. They understand that in the 21st century, information and perception are more important than ever before. ISIS understood it. You know, uh, the right-wing extremists understood it. Trump understood it. The people who really don't get it very well or don't do very much about it are, are the classical liberal democracies. We have nothing like the democratic communications infrastructure to compete with what the Russians call information warfare or or, or, or the Chinese call all sorts of things, um, publicity, thought and tongue work, the three warfares, whatever, they have many terms. But they invest hugely in it. And for them, it, you know, the toolkit includes troll farms and state-controlled conspiracy peddling media and bought front uh, publications in different countries and they're kind of wolf warrior diplomats and, and, and we don't. I mean, we do a little bit of support for independent media, uh, for Radio Free Europe and stuff like that. But that's only one little thing and really, in many ways, the weakest arm of, of, of that sort of armory because, you know, independent media will do what independent media do. Um, so we don't have anything to rival that. And I think we need to think through the institutions that would do that, uh, what their values would be. It can't be the values that the Chinese and the Russians have. And, and how would we measure impacts and so on and so forth. And, and we've done this in the past. In, in the Second World War, the British had the political warfare executive, which essentially was involved in a propaganda war with, with Nazi Germany. In the Cold War, the Americans had the US information agency. Um, so we've done this before. It's simply not true that democracies don't do it. And there's a way to do it that is true to our, our, our supposed values. Um, but we don't do it. And, and there's been, there's many reasons we don't. But, you know, I think we have, if we want to compete in the 21st century, we have to start doing that. Who are we, we, and we are talking about the West, who are we trying to convince? Is it in this context, would it be a Russian domestic audience? Would it be people no, in I, India and yeah, uh, the Middle East? Or is it ourselves? Well, ourselves is, is the bit that is done a little bit. You know, you, you, you have governments talking to, to their people through the usual channels. I mean, they don't do it very well, but they do that. Um, so, no, it, it's, um, no, it's about doing it into the adversary's territory. That's, that's the hardest thing, but also probably very important. Um, and, yes, the various swing countries, um, non-aligned countries, countries that are on the fence, and so on and so forth, yeah. 
you use this word non-aligned, it's a rather old-fashioned term. My understanding is there's, there's a great deal of ambivalence about this war in, quote-unquote, the non-aligned world. Is that true? And if so, why? There is a huge amount. Uh, exactly. It's a silly term. I was using it very ironically. It's a Cold War term. I don't know another term. Now, nowadays, yeah. Nowadays, there's an even worse term called the, the Global South, as if it's one thing, which is equally ridiculous, but it's the one that's being used now. And again, be, with, as with all such absurd generalizations, it's it's an absurd generalization. Um, so even within Latin America, which has always had sympathy for Russia for, for many understandable uh, Americanophobic reasons, um, um, uh, there's, there's, there's huge variations between a, a Brazil and a Chile and, uh, and a Colombian or Venezuela. So, so, so you really have to go market by market and country by country. Um, but I think it's, it's an interesting moment, actually. I was looking at some polling from India. I thought it would be much worse. I mean, the classical idea is India is Russia's ally. India wants to really not get pulled into any Western adventures in, in, in Europe. Um, India plows its own furrow, India hates America, etc., etc. I was actually quite surprised. There's actually very evenly split in India between support for Russia and support for Ukraine. So even someone like India might be, there might be a case to be made. But look, traditionally, these countries don't see why they should care about a bunch of white people killing each other. Uh, it's not their problem. Um, and traditionally, you know, framing this, which Russia always does, as, as an act of American imperialism is a, is a, is a message that, that echoes quite well in some of these countries. Again, that's the cliche. Start digging in. It's all a lot more complicated. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's many, many historical reasons why people look... People aren't, aren't worried by Moscow. You know, they don't see Moscow as a natural enemy, even if they don't necessarily see it as a friend, neither do they see it as an instinctive enemy. Most people have argued, most military analysts, that the Russians haven't performed very well on the battlefield. You're not really a, a military expert. How well have they performed on the propaganda battlefield? Have they, have they shown their best stuff in this war of propaganda? Well, in Europe and the US, it's been a disaster. It's been an unmitigated disaster. The propaganda troops were clearly not particularly prepared when the war started. I mean, they've, they've since then sort of, you know, got themselves in gear. So if you're talking about their usual toolkit of like TV channels and social media, they, they, there's clearly been a, a huge failure. Uh, to our audiences, they still do very well in Latin America. They still do very well in the Middle East. They still do very well in, in, in other places. So there's always this problem of seeing the whole world as Europe and America. And Putin's shtick has been, I don't care about the West anymore. There are enemies. Our new friends are Brazil. And South Africa and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in a way, um, you know, he's, he's almost sort of said, I don't care about that market, which, which sounds like, you know, somebody making up for, for losing. However, there is like, you know, that's the kind of propaganda of, of, of TV and media and social media. Well, clearly they've taken a, a hell of a beating in, 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 in a lot of Europe and America. Uh, again, they're doing very well in Bulgaria and, and Hungary. But, but generally, um, but there's the larger propaganda, the propaganda of the deed. And again, their big claim is that we're going to get away with this. Yeah, we can do this and we can murder with impunity. And because we have oil and because we have nuclear weapons, we can do this. So we're kind of, you know, propaganda can't purely be limited to sort of like, you know, a campaign on Twitter or something. It's much bigger than that. It's about imposing grand narratives and your grand narrative on, on the world. 
And Russia's grand narrative is that we are so big and scary, we will get away with this. And you have to bend your knee. And I think that narrative is still going very strong. There's still a huge uh, push, even within Europe and America, to kind of recognize a supposed inevitability, a mythical inevitability. But at the end of the day, Russia is so big and strong, we're going to have to make the Ukrainians cave. That is still very, very prevalent in society among political elites um, throughout what we think of as the West. So that larger narrative, which is based on a series of myths, um, so in that sense, a propaganda narrative, that too is, that, that is still going pretty strong, I'd say. You present the war militarily as a 19th century one, fought trenches, maybe more like the First World War. But I did a show earlier this week with the AI expert, uh, Toby Walsh, who argues that this is the first real drone war, the first robotic war. And for the most part, it's being used successfully by the Ukrainians, which is why we're not particularly panicked about it. Um, Is there a sort of weird disassociation between the Russian 19th century war and a a Ukrainian 21st century war fought with drones and then fought, of course, with a a dynamic media savvy politician like Zelensky? Are they fighting the same war? No, it's a very interesting question. I'd leave that to the military experts. But, you know, I was in Kiev, uh, what was I in Kiev last November? Was it November? Yeah, November. And look, we, we, we were up every night from Iranian Shahed drones cruising around Kiev's skies. So, so I don't know about... They've got plenty of drones. I, don't, I just don't know. <laughs> we can sleep, so... so. Well, what so, about the distinction then between Zelensky and Putin? One, clearly quite media savvy. One, still stuck in many ways in the 19th century in his sense of invincibility. And Napoleon versus... A Twitter guy. Well, I, th- I think I think actually the contrast between Zelensky and, and Putin is, is is a very good uh, example of how democracy can do communications and dictatorship. So Putin is trying to do information warfare in his various ways. Um, again, unsuccessful in Europe and the West, perfectly successfully in Latin America and and, and the Middle East and other places. Uh, so I wouldn't rush to kind of like applauding applauding his propaganda downfall quite so quickly, also very successfully at home, which is, at the end of the day, the most important thing. But Zelensky is showing that you can do global communications um, in a democratic way as well, as in, like, not manipulating people, but sort of, like, you know, convincing them through arguments and through through emotional warmth and and the truth. So so it shows you can, I think, I think Zelensky is an example to us, that you can do, you know, what sometimes known as public diplomacy or, or, or you know, uh, cultural diplomacy as well. All these different types of um, democratic communication, you can, you can, you can use them for, for good. I mean, they are persuasion. It's not media, it is, it is persuasion. But um, you can do that in a way that's, that's reasonably transparent and, and honest. So I think he's showing, like in so much else, I think the Ukrainians are showing the way. I think we need, we need, to be learning from them to a certain extent and also helping them. Now you're writing a book on the Second World War. We've done lots of shows this year on it, on this classic war perceived as good against evil. There's an interesting piece um, in the Times, New York Times this morning, about Zelensky signing a controversial law, and I'm quoting the title created by a New York Times editor, to regulate the news media. Is this in your mind? I mean, you obviously are, are not an objective observer here. 
should this be seen? Should we be perceiving it and presenting it as a war of pure good against evil? And might that ultimately blow up in our face in a, hopefully at some point, a post-war world, a post-Ukraine war world? I think it is a, a, a very black and white situation. But, but you know, I, I grew up in a generation where it was unfashionable to think of the world in terms of, of, of good and evil, uh, where that was seen as intellectually uh, poor and that the whole idea was to kind of like contextualize, relativize, subjectivize um, on a philosophical level and on a political level. I remember my editor at The Guardian telling me, you know, I don't believe in good and evil. Now, I don't know about good and evil. I'm not Christian. I'm Jewish. So, so we have a complex, more complex ideas about good than the Christian one. But um, um, I do think that when we try to contextualize and deconstruct our ideas of good and evil, I think in retrospect, what we were actually doing was running away from the phenomenon of evil. And what I would like us to return to philosophically, but also politically, is the question of evil and what do you do about evil? So will we good is good? Maybe we can relativize actually. Again, I'm I'm Jewish. We don't really do good in that pure sense. We don't have Christ. We have these very complex, uh, um, complex patriarchs who are clearly not good in the Christian sense, but they're striving for something. But um, but evil, I think, is the one we've been avoiding. How do we deal with evil? What is evil? I think in, in our attempts to be sophisticated, we were actually running away from the challenge of evil. The philosophical challenge, what is it? We know it's an absence of things, but what is it? And how do we confront it? And most importantly, how do we defeat it? Um, I think my generation was posing as clever, but actually it was just running away from really difficult questions. Um, how do we fight evil? How do we fight this clear evil that is emanating from the Kremlin? Um, how do we describe it? How do we find its weak spots? How do we defeat it? Um, the good, good is always complicated. I certainly don't believe in pure good. Things are very, very complicated always. But evil, no, I, I definitely believe in evil. Is there anything new here, though? I mean, there was a huge debate about good and evil after the Second World War, probably centered on Hannah Arendt, her work on uh, Eichmann, hugely complicated. Um, have we did we learn anything from that and is this war in ukraine in any way different from the second world war i think getting to the political psychology and maybe the social psychology that underlines putism and nazism there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities i've been rereading the i mean arendt fine i mean like yes arendt is great but also been reading the kind of the psychoanalysts to try to understand the nazi mind so, um, um, so there were some British guys who analysed Nazi soldiers. Um, there was Eric Fromm, obviously, talking about um, the sadomasochistic traditions in German political psychology. A lot of that resonates a lot um, in, with Russia. Um, the lack of subjectivity, the giving away of responsibility, all those things echo. Uh, but we also need, you know, philosophy is great, but also always tragic because life isn't philosophy so we need novels to explore this we need books to explore this um probably i don't know i'm not sure if heinrich and thomas mann didn't do more work than than um hannah Arendt. it's it, what what i'm struggling with peter is you wrote in the atlantic for example we can only be enemies and you're defining putin as pure evil 
But we know that you're not. I mean, at best in this war, at best, Putin will claim victory and end it. You're not going to get rid of him and you're not going to get rid of his type of regime. So it's not like the Second World War. You can't start again. How how do you end a war if you believe that the enemy, and you may be right, is pure evil? How do you make peace with pure evil? Well, you don't, firstly. I mean, look, here, here we're back to sort of like, you know, the, the pragmatic. So so in terms of winning the war, there's several there's several stages. I mean, winning the war means a, a change of perception within Russia that leads to a change in political calculation where they, you know, admit um, defeat, cut their losses, whichever language they fight. They, they, they find for it and on terms, you know, dictated by Kiev. Um, then... Well, hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. On terms dictated by Kiev? No. You I mean, slip that one in. I mean, what does that mean? Whatever Kiev dictates. I mean, like, you know, that's that's up that's up to them. But, um, but yes, you need, you need the regime to go, we're cutting our losses. This has gone as far as we can go, and we're now... We're not cutting our losses. So like that, Afghanistan. Yeah. Would, would it be equivalent to their retreat from Afghanistan? No, it might not be. Probably less of a mess. Uh, or the American like retreat. Yeah. So basically saying this war was a mistake. We have to end it. Yeah. Words to that effect. They might not say those words, but words to that effect. Yeah. A change in political calculation. At the moment, they're saying we will fight this war until Ukraine falls and the West collapses. Yeah. Or the West becomes disunited. At one point... You know, there's going to have to be a political decision which goes, oh, Ukraine is not breaking and the West is not collapsing. Therefore, we need to change our policy. That moment. They can be expressed in a million ways. We all know what it means, though. We are retreating our troops. We are not at war with Ukraine anymore. That one. The special operation is over. That has to be articulated in some way. Um, and at that moment, what we have to ensure is that Ukraine is as safe as Poland or Estonia so that they can't do it again. Um, whatever happens inside of Russia doesn't really matter to Poland or Estonia anymore because they are within a, a security architecture that makes that possible. Um, whether that means the Euro joining NATO, de facto joining NATO, some other security guarantees, I don't know. That has, but that that's that's phase one. So you you with evil, I mean, you put huge walls up and 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 try to keep it away. So you're suggesting uh, a, a, if if you can indeed create carve some sort of peace um a return to the depths of the cold war you just sanction off russia you ban no, it, won't, it won't it won't be like the cold war we, we live in a different sort of world but 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 that's yeah that would be the most you know if we're talking about the next sort of year two years that's 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 what we're heading for um that's what everybody in dc thinks i mean that's 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 just what it's going to be you know they're going to fight until they can't fight anymore then they'll then they'll have to say, oh, okay, that was a mistake, and in that, then we, you know, then the question is, how do we make sure they can't do it again? That's the real question. How do we? It's not about them, you know. It's about us. How do we make sure they can't do it again? And that's up for debate, but that debate might be quite dynamic. Um, on the other hand, in the in the longer term, the, the, the larger question about whether the Putin regime is is sustainable, um, you know. My aim and my my focus and my 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 horizons are just about winning, getting to that stage at the moment, because getting to that stage is bloody difficult and not guaranteed, by the way. So that's that's what my focus is. But but historically, these regimes are can be very brittle. Everything can seem fine and they go. Um, so I would not um, I would not 
buy into the Kremlin propaganda enough to um, to think that they're that they're inevitable and endless. Um, they're, they're quite they go quite quickly when they go these regimes. Um, well, but they that, do and they that, don't. We just did a show on Syria. Bashar Assad is still in existence. Who would have guessed three or four years ago that he would still be in power? And now his foreign minister is in Moscow with the Turkish foreign minister talking about peace in Syria. So we, we, we seem to be heading to a world in which the Bashar Assad's and the Vladimir Putin's will continue to exist in a, in a weirdly sort of fragmented, deglobalized or de I hate this word, decoupled world. Um, I think that I think that whatever we think of 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 Putin, and you know, there's every chance the next leader will be will be another version of nasty, maybe more pragmatic and less prone to suicidal, not suicidal, to miscalculations, the way Putin has become. But but there's every chance that the next the next leader is 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 equally um, a, a Russian DeSantis. Yeah, I, I find it silly comparing American and Russian politics. So, um, a Russian, yeah, but but whatever, you know, a Patrushev, whatever. There's there's no guarantee that it'll turn democratic. Um, so, but just more pragmatic, so less less inclined to do stupid wars they can't win. Um, so, yes, um, and the question is, will it be given how interconnected we all are? What are we going to move towards? I mean, clearly, globalization 1.0 is over as an idea, as an ideology, as a myth. Um, you know, this idea that we will integrate and it will bring us to perpetual peace because we're also dependent on each other has led instead to a world where dictatorships think they can coerce democracies. So that clearly is over and we're gonna look for a new balance. I don't think we'll be like the Cold War so because we are so interconnected. Uh, maybe some sort of, you know, an understanding that our interconnections mean that you can't do really stupid shit. Yeah, instead of it going, oh, we'll get away with really stupid shit because they're so dependent on our oil and business, therefore we can invade Ukraine. The opposite, you know, we can't invade Taiwan because we do actually need the American market. So, may, but but that that has to be signaled, you know, if you're if you want to keep this precarious sort of uh, well-being, then then we need certain guarantees. So, kind of a a mutual. So instead of globalization leading to a global village, a kind of weaponized interdependence where which which balances each other out. So sort of mutually assured economic destruction. Um, again, I am not, you know, I, I, I am not an economist, but I could see how that might work as a kind of way to imagine the world, which I suppose is what I'm really interested in. Um, and, and maybe that's where we're heading towards. Um, and a lot of people say that. I mean, people much cleverer than myself, that, you know, if it had been explained to Putin what the consequences would be of this war, he wouldn't have done it. He thought he could get away with it because he got away with Syria, as he said. He got away with all these other things. And so he thought, well, one more little roll of the dice, why not? Um, and I mean, that's definitely the attitude in Moscow. That's what everyone thinks there, that he thought he'd get away with it again. Quick operation, like Georgia, back to normal. Um, and 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 he miscalculated in every which way. So so maybe that's what we're going to move, move to. Um, that would, you know, be kind of at least related to the world we live in. So not quite decoupled. So let's end with 2023, Peter. Um, you wrote an interesting piece in The Guardian. You write lots of interesting pieces back in May. You, you wrote, uh, and I'm borrowing the language of the headline, Ukraine must negotiate from a position of strength. To what extent is, is, is even your presentation today um, a conversation about the peace 
And at what, uh, to what extent, in your view, is 2023 going to be uh, a year in which Ukrainian and Russian propagandists, and I use that word generally, are negotiating about the peace? Because it has to come, doesn't it? I think there's a delusion that um, a lot of people around me in D.C. seem to indulge in, um, which is that negotiations are the product of beautiful ideas dreamt up by think tankers with excellent hair care. That if if only one can design this very clever peace agreement, that's what would satisfy everybody's desires. And you could balance it out like a gorgeous piece of kind of like international relations origami. That's what negotiate. Not that's not what negotiations are. What happens is the power, the two, the various parties beat the crap out of each other. At one point, realize they can't go further, and that's where the nego- That's where the piece is. So that's what they are. It's got nothing to do with beauty created by think tankers. It's got to do with like we can't go any further. Okay, now we decide. Um, the main thing is that when that happens, Ukraine is is winning, and Ukraine is going forward. And you know. The so-called experts have written Ukraine off at the start of this war. A few months ago, they were saying Ukraine can't go further. Every month they go further and further on the battlefield. They win over and over again. So all they ask for is arms and and support. So we should keep on increasing that and increasing that. The big thing they're asking for, the one that really changes things and the one that we've been reluctant to give to our disgrace, is a right of reply, essentially. As long as Russia can keep on sending missiles into Ukraine, they have a systemic advantage, yeah? Ukraine can't do that. They don't have the missiles and they don't kind of have the kind of, you know, the approval of the world. Not that they would need it, but it would be helpful as well when you're in a partnership. That has to change. Russia will stop when they realize Belgorod and Saratov can be hit when there's parity, you know. So I expect the, the, the critical moment will be when, when there's parity. Um, the Russians won't use nuclear weapons, that's silly. Um, but they will keep on using all sorts of ballistic missiles. So until Ukrainians have parity in that, it's hard for them to really get on top. I mean, they are on top in so many ways, but to really get on top. So that's all it is. I don't think there's any beautiful think tanker that can build, create some beautiful formula. It'll happen when, when you know, when the arms of the boxer sag and the bell rings for the last round. Excellent.